It was uh, one week short of being six years ago in the deep South Texas area called the Rio Grande Valley. I was listening to a local news radio station and I heard these words, the emergency broadcast system, devastating damage expected. Hurricane Katrina, a most powerful hurricane with unprecedented strength, rivaling the intensity of Hurricane Camille of 1969. I think rather than me reading that bulletin to you, I want to let you listen to it. I ripped it off of YouTube. I want you to listen as you hear the words of that broadcast. Listen to the intensity of the storm and the expected damage. Spencer? Devastating damage expected. Hurricane Katrina, a most powerful hurricane with unprecedented strength, rivaling the intensity of Hurricane Camille of 1969. Most of the area will be uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. At least one half of well-constructed homes will have roof and wall failure. All gabled roofs will fail, leaving those homes severely damaged or destroyed. The majority of industrial buildings will become non-functional. Partial to complete wall and roof failure is expected. All wood-framed low-rising apartment buildings will be destroyed. Concrete-blocked low-rise apartments will sustain major damage, including some wall and roof failure. High-rise office and apartment buildings will sway dangerously, a few to the point of total collapse. All windows will blow out. Airborne debris will be widespread and may include heavy items such as household appliances and even light vehicles. Sport utility vehicles and light trucks will be moved. The blown debris will create additional destruction. Persons, pets, and livestock exposed to the winds will face certain death if struck. Power outages will last for weeks as most power poles will be down and transformers destroyed. Water shortages will make human suffering incredible by modern standards. The vast majority of native trees will be snapped or uprooted. Only the hardiest will remain standing, but be totally defoliated. Few crops will remain. Livestock left exposed to the winds will be killed. An inland hurricane wind warning is issued when sustained winds near hurricane force or frequent gusts at or above hurricane force are certain within the next 12 to 24 hours. Once tropical storm and hurricane force winds on set, do not venture outside. When I first heard those words over the radio, I thought it was one of those radio gags like the War of the Worlds thing. Never in my life had I heard a radio station publish and push out over the airwaves a message like that. A message that included statements. Did you hear like this one? High-rise office and apartment buildings will, stay, will sway dangerously, a few to the point of total collapse. Livestock, persons, and pets left out will be certainly killed. I couldn't believe I was hearing that. Hurricane Katrina. After the fact, damage reports included... Over 300,000 homes destroyed or made unlivable. 
90,000 square miles of, of land was damaged. Total property damage, over $81 billion. 1,833 people lost their lives in that storm. We live in a time where our technology gives us heads-ups, gives us warnings, gives us advance notice of things that will come at us that have the tendency or the possibilities of totally disrupting our lives. And yet we have churches all across America that are full of people who get blindsided by the storms of life. Not the ones that are called hurricanes and not the ones that are called tornadoes, although obviously those certainly do their damage to us. We get blindsided by the storms that are financial and the storms that are health-related. Just this week, Teresa and I stood in the hallways of a local hospital where one of the family members of a church member lay in dire straits in ICU, hanging on the edge between death and life. Are you ready for the storms of life? Some of you are here today, I know, in a crowd this size. Some of you are here today and you're already facing something. And maybe the reason you came to church today is because something is pushing against you and you are out of your element, out of control, and you just need help. I want you to go with me today in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 actually is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What I want to do today is begin my first real series. Now, I've been here almost two full months. Uh, I think this is my eighth Sunday to preach here. And I have been systematically and intentionally taking messages that have been kind of uh, just kind of picked what it may appear to you at random, but for me very intentionally to try to lay out some basic truths of who I am and who we need to be as a church. But today what I want to do is begin my first real series through a passage of Scripture that will take us some time to work through. I want to work through the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, goes all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And you can already figure out that what I'm doing today is starting a series by going to the end of the passage. Because at the end of the passage, Jesus gives us a statement as he wraps up everything that he said on that side of that hill. And it really is a place for us to start. Because what I'm asking, I'm going to go ahead and give you the invitation right now. Okay, What I'm going to ask you to do today is to make a commitment, not with me, but with God, that you will take what we're going to find in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. As we work through it, probably going to take us a year to a year and a half to get through it. But I'm asking you today, before you even know what it says, I'm asking you to make the commitment, I will do what Jesus said. Now, before you do that, don't, don't, don't be haphazard in that, because this is serious business. Listen to what Jesus says at the end of this passage, where he has laid out what the picture of Christian living looks like. He says in verse 24, chapter 7, Matthew's gospel, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And many of you are sitting out there thinking in your mind that old Sunday school children's song, uh, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came. Or was it the walls in Joshua and Jericho? And Are you all there today? I'm, I'm going to throw something out there totally off wall just see if you're listening today. You remember that old children's Sunday school song? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, at the end of the sermon, lays out this challenge? You have to know this. The storms of life are coming. You don't get to choose whether you go through them or not. What you choose is how you go through them. And every one of us will go through the storms of life in these lives that we are building for ourselves. Every day, every moment, every decision is part of the building that we are constructing that we call life. And when the storms of life come at you, how will you fare? How will you get through those things? What we find in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it, Jesus looks backwards. And he says, if you'll do what I've said, you notice that he doesn't say what some of those modern church people would tell you, that if you'll do what he says, you won't go through the storm. He didn't say that. He says, if you'll do what I say, you'll get through the storms. Well, let's look at a couple of things here very carefully. I want to make sure that we understand the point of this passage. Look at verse 24 again. And then look at verse 26. And there's some things in common, but there's one striking difference. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and what, what does he say? Everyone who hears and does. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do. That's really the point of this whole passage. Jesus is saying, take my teachings, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and plug them in. And when you plug them in, the storms are going to come, but you will stand. You know, that's not necessarily the way modern church does it. We've kind of constructed this erroneous picture of what the Christian life is. Matter of fact, if I were to ask you this morning, what, what does a Christian look like? You would probably step back and think through it a little bit and you would highlight a few key things that are tied to it. If I ask you, what does a dog look like? What would you say? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Some of you ladies, by the way, those of you ladies who came to my house on Friday night for ladies' movie night, I have two things to say. First of all, there's some things are broken and some things are missing. <laughs> no, neither one of those is true, actually. We're so glad that you came to the house, and I hope that you had fun. Now that you know where we live, you're welcome to come by and drop by and see us sometime, all that. I am a little upset because nobody took the dog with you. And to those of you here there who were there but are here probably are saying, well, wait a minute, which dog? You see, what's happened since last Sunday is my wife has opened a dog rescue farm at our house. If I say to you, what does a dog look like? My guess is that you're going to answer based on your experience. 
And you're going to explain to me your dog, probably. Well, a dog has a tail. Well, but that's not always true. You ever seen a dog without a tail? We used to have a dog that had part of a tail. Somebody just cut it off. We paid somebody to cut it off, actually. Some of you might say, well, a dog has four legs. Not necessarily. I've seen a dog before that had three legs. He ran in circles, but he... (laughs) Stay with me. And you might say that a dog has short hair, but not all dogs have short hair. So really what we're asking is, what is the essence of dog? So Teresa has now this dog. I already told you about the electric dog, the one that belongs to my son, that we have allowed to live in the backyard rather than in the house. Uh, And I could explain that dog to you, but the new dog that we have is about a third the size of that dog. This dog is ugly with a capital ugh. I mean ugly dog. Teresa says ugly, so ugly he's cute. Well, whatever. That's what she said about me for years. Uh, So I, I don't want you to just get stuck on dogs here, but I do want to make my point with that. We have this little bitty dog and then we have this medium sized dog. And I know some of you have dogs like a man's dog, labs and great danes and, you know, a man, a dog a man can be proud of. If I ask you to describe a dog, what I want you to do is describe the essence of dogness for me. But here's the rub for us to get it off of dogs and right back to the passage. This world in which we live needs to know what a Christian is. Now, the problem is... I'm not sure most churches, most Christian people, get the essence of Christianness down. I'm going to argue for you as we go through this that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching of the essence of Christianness. And we're going to find as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus lays out for us a picture of a Christ follower. And, he, and he's not going to say, well, they have two legs because all of them don't. And not, he's not going to say that they have blonde hair because some of us don't have any hair. He's going to walk us through and he's going to say, this is the essence of Christianness. A Christ follower looks like this. But you see, we have a world that is dying to see the real thing. Do you know that Mahatma Gandhi, one of the men that... People of the last century, the 20th century, always when they were doing these lists of the great people of the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi gets mentioned on every list. Do you realize that at one point in his life, he had been curious about Christianity and he wanted to follow the teachings of Christ and finally somebody came to him and said, why don't you become a Christian? And he said, I don't want to be a Christian because I've known too many Christians. Wow. What a stinging indictment for the church of the 20th century. You know that the most drawing person of Jesus' day was Jesus? Oh, now I know that the church crowd didn't like him because he took the church crowd to task. 
But the real people of the world were drawn to him. They couldn't get enough of who he was. You know why? Because he is the essence of what it means to be a child of God. Well, he's the son of God. He is God himself. He got it right. So when he comes in three chapters and he says to us, this is what it looks like, we better listen to that. If you heard an emergency broadcast system announcement like that today about a hurricane pending in the Gulf that was coming this way, I guarantee you your experience with Katrina, even though you might not have been over there, your experience with that would cause you to take note of what's going on. And so Jesus says to us, don't miss the fact that at the end of the whole teaching time, he says, storms are coming. You better get ready. Because the storms are coming and the storms are bad enough that if you haven't built the right kind of house, your house is going away in that. But see, we don't always get that. In Christianity, in our church, the church of my day, we, we, we have adopted the trappings of Christianity and called it Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. I'm Southern Baptist, okay? I've been Southern Baptist all my life. Hadn't been anything else. What that does is that qualifies me to pick on Southern Baptists. Okay? So let me just do a little picking here. One of the things that we kind of get off-center a little bit is, is we kind of adopt a mentality in Christian Baptist circles. It really says, well, being a Christian means that you know a lot about the Bible. I'll even be nice and say that you know a lot of Bible. Baptists are bad about this. When I was a kid, and growing out of my teenage years into my adult years, uh, our church in West Texas, in Odessa, decided that we would get involved in this Sunday school training stuff. And here's the basic concept. If you went to these classes, and you got these books, we called them study course books, And you went through the teaching part of that, and usually they were about six weeks or something like that. At the end of it, they had some basic questions about what you had studied. If you wrote those, answered those questions, and you sent that in to Nashville, which is Baptist Mecca back in those days, if you sent them in, then they would send you a certificate. I got my first certificate after finishing one of those classes, and I was going, yes, I know something now. I have an official certificate. I thought I was something else until in the same meeting where I got my certificate. Our church made a big deal of it. Oh, you finished the stuff. You know something. Here's a certificate. I was living like the devil on the side, but I had a certificate. I was official. And what blew me away was the person sitting next to me, a friend of mine already had the certificate, and he had gone through the same work, so they gave him a sticker for his certificate. And then all of a sudden I was going, well, wait a minute, I don't have a sticker. I don't know as much as he does. So now we have this class system about how much you know in Baptist life. And then I found out there's three stickers for every certificate. All of a sudden I didn't know anything. I'm living like the devil. Building a house with my life that would not stand up to the storms. I promise you, I was creating storms and I still was going the wrong direction. But I knew a lot. Sometimes, now this is going to stretch a few of you. Be careful. Stay with me. Sometimes we don't just go with what we know. 
By the way, I could add a few things to that. And you can stack up books. You walk into my office in there, and I got books upon books upon books. That mean I know anything. I'm smart enough to know I don't know anything. That's why I need books. But see, we get into this mentality that says, well, if I just take this course, or if I just do that, or if I just listen to this preacher long enough, and I'll listen to everything he preaches, and I'll listen to preaching all day long, that makes me a better Christian. That's baloney. That's a theological term for you. Baloney. It doesn't make you a better Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. So then we took it to the next level, and it was about, well, if I memorize Scripture, then that makes me better. I fell into this trap as a youth minister. For many years, I worked with some other youth ministers in South Texas, and we put together and conducted a camp uh, outside of Corpus Christi, Texas. It started off just being for our churches. Uh, Each of us were youth pastors. We had one pastor in the group, and, and we just wanted a good camp that we could take our kids to. So we just did our own, and it was good. I don't mind telling you, it was good. And it was good enough that many of the churches in the area and then across the state started saying, we won't send our kids to that camp. So for a number of years, for two weeks in July, we were conducting these youth camps. And because we were all committed to Scripture and we wanted to build disciples, we didn't want to just have a bunch of kids having a good time at camp. So uh, we started doing some things in the camp curriculum and we decided that Scripture memory was very important. By the way, it is. Okay, Just like knowing stuff is important. So we started building into the, the camp deal, this challenge to the kids. Actually, we wanted it to be a competition, and so we made it that. So we said, the kid who memorizes the most scripture during this week of camp, we'll give a prize to. I think it was a Bible or something like that. Man, we didn't have any clue about how those kids were going to take to that. They started memorizing scripture. We thought they might get 50 for the week. They were getting 50 before lunch. We had people set up kind of like we do with Awanas so they could listen. By the way, if you want to work in Awanas, we still got room for you, okay? We want you to work. It's important. But, uh, and so we'd have sponsors set up to listen to these kids and they'd come and memorize scripture and then we'd give them the next one. They'd go memorize it. By the end of the week, we had this one kid. He won it two or three years in a row. I mean, he was memorizing hundreds of passages of scripture through the course of the week. You know what we figured out after a while? They would tell us the scripture. And then they go off, and even if they remembered it, they didn't plug it in. You can memorize the whole Bible and miss it on the Christian life. You see what we've done? We've taken the trappings, the decor of churchdom, and we've said that's Christianity. But we need to wake up, folks, and look outside and realize the world out there, the people you work with who don't go to church, they see the decorations of churchdom, and they go, I don't need that. And you know what? They don't. We're selling them a false gospel if we're selling them anything other than Jesus Christ. That's just straight up. Now, that revolutionized the Church of America today if we figured that out. Part of those trappings, part of the things that we've called, you know, is, is well, you've got to go to church. You gotta, and I'm not going to argue against going to church. I want you to come. I, I want you to come so badly that I'm committed that when you show up on Sunday, I promise you I will have done the study necessary to have something to say. I'm not going to waste your time up here. Okay? So you need to come. But coming doesn't make you a Christian. You know, back in the old days, we had our certificates with stickers. Official Baptist know-it-alls. You know, well, we also like to recognize official Baptists show-up-it-alls. 
You know that in Baptist life of the old days, they'd give you a pen if you came to church in Sunday school. If you had perfect attendance, they'd give you a pen. Teresa and I graduated together. 613 people in our graduating class. Now, that wasn't when we were together. She was infatuated with my best friend, and uh, so I had to kill him, and that's how I got her. <laughs> well, no, no, not, not exactly. But. So, graduating class, same school, same year, 613 graduates. They stopped a, a field house, uh, special events center for the county, full of people. They stopped the whole graduating ceremony to recognize one guy out of our class. Stuart, I think was his name. Is that right? Stuart Holden, something like that. Anyway, you know why they did that? Because this guy went from kindergarten through graduation, never missed a day of class. Oh, poor kid. I, I just died for him. He didn't know what he was missing. He should have hung out with me. You know, Baptists used to do that. If you had Sunday school perfect attendance, they'd give you a pen. And if you had the perfect attendance the next year, they didn't want you to have too many pens. They'd give you a little chevron and you could hang it underneath it. I remember going to church as a kid and seeing people that were tripping over their pens because they'd been forever. Never missed a Sunday at church. I wondered, even as a kid, do they have a life? You see, that's a scathing indictment in itself. We're great at taking the truth and setting it on a shelf and grabbing what's next to it and calling it Christianity. Steve Camp, songwriter, Christian musician from years ago, referred to it this way. We've been playing marbles with diamonds. We're building houses and we're using materials and we're putting them on a foundation that just won't cut it. And that's why we find people, church people, Christian people, who find themselves in the middle of a storm and you ask them, where's God in this? And they don't have a clue. And what they find and what we find and what you've probably found is that all of those trappings, the, the core of Christianity that we pull together and we say, this is it, this is Christianity, it just doesn't stand to the storm. And Jesus knew that. And so he comes to the end of this Sermon on the Mount. A sermon, by the way, where he's going to do a number of things. First of all, he's going to challenge your socks off when it comes to living. He's going to take you to a total new level in your personal relationship with God. Not the religion of it all. As a matter of fact, the thesis of the whole Sermon on the Mount is verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. Here's basically what it says. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. That, is, that just blew those people's minds. I know it did. Some disciple rolled down the side of the hill with that one, I'm sure. What? So a righteousness that goes beyond what the scribes and Pharisees... They're the professional religionists, Jesus. Are you sure about that? See, Jesus had more in mind than just lockstep, legalistic, following the rules, dead religion. 
It's relationship. And so when he comes to that thing we call the Lord's Prayer, better called the model prayer, in chapter 6, he's going to say, and so when you come, you say, Our Father who art in heaven. The who art in heaven is not God's last name, but we treat it that way. Our Father. That's going to cause some people some problems because you've got bad examples of fathers. And some of those bad examples of fathers are church people. You've got to get over the garbage of life, the storms of life, sometimes to see the truth. And Jesus is going to take us right straight to the heart of God. And it's going to be hard. I'm telling you, there's going to be some hard teaching in this. But at the end, that's why I start at the end, because Jesus says at the end of it all, if you'll listen and obey what I'm saying, you'll stand the test. So what are you building as it relates to your life today? The invitation, I already told you, the invitation today is for you to make a commitment to go with me. As we explore Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, will you make a commitment on the front side to do what you know. You are building a house with your life. What are you building? I heard a preacher tell this story years ago. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it certainly illustrates the point well. There was a man who had more money than anything else. He was, by anybody's estimation, loaded with money. And he decided that he was going to take a trip, one of those around-the-world kind of cruises. And it was going to take him well over a year to go on the whole trip, and he was okay with that. He made his money, and he's just going to live it up for a while. And so he called a friend of his who was the best contractor in town. And he said to his friend, listen, I'm going to go on this trip, and I want you, while I'm gone, I want you to build me a house. And I want you to make it the best house. I want it to be out of the best materials. I want everything to be top shelf. From the dirt that you use under the foundation to the foundation to the studs to everything, I want this to be the best materials. I want the best house money can buy. I've set up an account over here. I've put you in charge of it. All the money is for you to use. You do what you want. I just want it to be a great house. And his guy said, okay, I'll do that. No sooner had he left this rich guy on his cruise than that contractor started studying the situation. He's saying, you know, he's not really going to know some things. Some things are going to be obvious. The pools on the drawers, he's going to be able to look at and see in the drawers themselves, but he's not going to know what's in the walls. And So he kind of came up with this little plan that he was going to cut corners where he could, charge him for the full price of the full stuff, and then he was going to pocket the difference. And as he was building it, he was really careful to try to cover all of those things and as best he could. And he built this house, and on the outside it looked great, but he knew deep inside that it was really kind of a sorry house. And the day came that the owner came home, and he called him up and he said, Hey, I'm back. Did you finish my house? He said, Yes, sir. He said, Is it with the best materials that the best house money can buy? He said, Yes, sir, it is. I think you're going to love it. He said, Well, let's go see. I'll meet you over there. So they showed up. They walked through the house. The owner looked at it. What he could see looked great. He said, you telling me this is the best money can buy? And the guy said, yes, sir. He said, all right. And as the guy handed him the keys, he said, no, no, no. 
He said, actually, I had you build this house for yourself. It was my gift to you for being my friend. And I wanted it to be the best house that money could buy. And I knew if I told you to build it for yourself, you wouldn't do that. But I knew you'd do it for me. So I want you to keep the keys. This is your house. It is in your name. Let me tell you something. You're going to live in the house that you built. And the storms of life are coming. Some of them, before you even get home, those storms are going to hit you. You're going to live in the house that you build. Jesus says, if you'll build on the foundation of my word, you'll make it through those storms. So my encouragement to you, my invitation to you, is to go with me. It's going to take us over a year. It's okay. Every message is full of truth. Go with me. Let's pray. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, let me just bring this message home for you. First of all, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the first step that you have to take is to make Him the Savior and the Lord of your life. And He died on a cross because He loves you and He doesn't want you to be a victim of life. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in just a few moments when I have everybody stand and I'll just invite you to slip out and come forward. We'll talk with you, pray with you, counsel with you, answer questions that you have. Let me tell you, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're sitting there today, say, well, I know about him, but I can't say that I know him. Let me tell you, you are missing life. And I would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. So that's part of the invitation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, just a few moments. Matter of fact, you can come now if you want to. Just stand up, walk out. Nobody's going to laugh at you. Nobody's going to make fun of you. Lots of people are going to pray for you. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I invite you to come to get to know him. And I know a crowd like this, many of us accepted Christ as our Savior a long time ago. But there's a better than average chance that the majority of us here have adopted the decorations of churchianity. We've left the teachings of Christ behind. My invitation to you is right now, where you are, that you make a commitment under God and by God's strength, I'm going to be obedient. Maybe that means you need a formal restart. Just come down. You don't even have to talk to me. You just come down here and pray. Come down here and talk to me. I'll pray with you. I'll hand you off to one of our deacons. They'll pray with you. We'll counsel with Whatever you need to help you as you begin this new journey, we want to do that for you. That's why we're here. But you have to take the step. You have to step out and act on it. Let's all stand together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. The invitation is yours. I'll be quiet come.